great. Um, so we had a good, good break, um, and I, I was just wondering. I wonder if they're going to remember uh, where we were, where we left on this whole uh, talk about depression and how Scripture addresses it. Um, so if you weren't here for the first two sessions on, on depression, I want to encourage you maybe to, to take the notes um, and, or listen uh, in our website, the previous um, lectures that we had on it. Because, um, you know, if you get some of this information here out of context, you can think like, well, that doesn't sound compassionate, doesn't sound you know, addressing some of the concerns that I have. So maybe some of those questions were already answered in the previous meetings that we had on this. So putting things into context, it's helpful. Um, all right, have a lot to cover today. I thought, I was like, man, I don't want to extend this for another fourth session. It's going to be depressive. I think, it, it, you know, I want to I wanna get toward the end of the year and uh, for us covering uh, God's will and biblical decision-making. So the next two Sundays, I think that, that will be so important for us to, to reflect, you know, for the young people, for the old. For, we're always making decisions. We're always seeking, am I doing God's will? And what, is, what does that mean and how I can and go about doing the right thing to glorify God in my decisions? So, all right, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for another blessed Sunday. Lord, we're thankful for your creation as we can look around and see the beauty um, in what you have done that points us to the beauty of who you are, of your holiness, of your greatness. Father, I pray that as we reflect on um, what your word calls sadness and deep sadness and deep grief and anguish that some of us endure and some of those uh, around us as well. May we find encouragement from his scriptures and clear instruction. And find help in time of need. Lord, we have a high priest that sympathizes with us, and I pray that even now you would encourage, confirm, and strengthen those that might be struggling. We are thankful for your word, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, so we, last week, like two weeks ago, actually, we spent some time uh, thinking about what are some potential uh, spiritual causes for depression. And we came up with these three um, possibilities, and obviously, given some might have organic causes, and we discussed that. Some medications can cause that. Certain type of hormonal imbalances can cause that. But then... We're, what we're focusing now is on the spiritual causes for spiritual depression, for, for depression. And so uh, today we'll give, address those three types of um, um, causes on how we, how do we handle them, how to respond them in a biblical way. So those mishandling suffering, that is the first one, um, and that refers to Someone that is having sorrow over a, a difficult circumstance, over a trial, and it's been really hard for them to, to, to handle that. The second one is someone that is dealing with, um, let's see here, with those who are having unbiblical thinking, 
Um, and that has to do with um, biblical patterns or standards that people have set for themselves, and now they're frustrated that they're not um, achieving those uh, standards that they have set uh, for themselves. And then lastly, when uh, we're dealing with sin, and then the last section of our study today, I want to spend time giving clear guidance on how you can help people with depression. I mean, this is for us to apply, and this is something that you can teach them, but ultimately, I think it is helpful. It, it is different than um, counseling someone with anxiety or marriage problems. Uh, depressive people have, uh, you know, the some specifics that you need to know how to handle and, and how to handle that biblically. So, all right, so with no more um, delay, uh, for those mishandling suffering or sorrow, so I think it is helpful for us to know that sorrow is a depressing reality, you know, of our lives. We all face difficult circumstances, and, and the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, difficult uh, difficulty with your children, uh, with someone in a family. We all go through those uh, difficult circumstances. And it's part of God's plan and the restore his people to his likeness. Then the sorrow that is destructive within the wor- this world, by God's grace, can, be super- can supernaturally lead to righteousness. When a person submits to God's will over his or her self-advancement, sorrow is used by God for that individual's good. This is a reality no way diminishes or removes the distressful uh, of, of that, those circumstances, but yet it encourages us to pursue the, the right kind of sorrow. A uh, good reminder of that is 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. If someone can open that scriptures there and read it for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking about two types of sorrow, a worldly kind of sorrow and a godly type of sorrow. Um, I appreciate Daniel Berger putting this... Um, chart here, as you see in your notes there, um, explaining this, that when there is a sorrow that is motivated by our desires and not a desire to please God, it will always be unworldly sorrow. But when our desire is to please the Lord, that will be different. All right, so has anyone found Second, uh, second Corinthians? Ricky? Right, on to verse 10. Oh, sorry. It's starting on seven. I reverse it. Thank you, Ricky. All right, so we see here the context of this passage. Obviously, Paul is speaking of the Corinthians that were in, in sin. And, you know, obviously he wrote them a letter that was harsh. And he kind of grieved because they were so devastated by it. But it was what I want to point your um, your eyes here is that that sorrow was according to God's will. It was according to God's intended purposes. So some sorrow is intended by God's purposes and lead to salvation and leads to spiritual growth, as opposed to the worldly sorrow only leads to death and desperation and, um, and all those horrible things. So all people will sorrow according to the purpose of God or accor- according to the world's intent. Sorrow either drives us an individual to Christ as deliverer or it drives the person to pursue false gods and hopes that cannot save anyone, which always lead to destruction. The only right 
for biblical reaction to sorrow is to depend more fully on God and to seek to know him more intimately. And so I want to give you four, um, four or three instructions here on, uh, about suffering or sorrow. The first truth is God allows suffering. If God made the sinless Christ to be sorrow for us, then we must also consider whether or not he purposes in his goodness to sometimes allow and other times to withhold sorrow from us. Biblical change then is first and foremost a change of thinking and perspective. Although numerous books on Job have been written, it is important to understand that God not only allowed Satan to test Job, but God also knew that it would bring about sorrow and despair in his life. It wasn't like God, okay, I'm going to let Satan do this, and I'm surprised. I didn't know that he was going to react this way. He's going to be suffering and, and struggling in sorrow. No. After going through this incredible loss and being stricken with physical illness, Job and his, Job's friends came to him, and while he lamented the loss of his family, they saw Verse uh, 13 of chapter 2 says that they saw that his suffering was very great. Job 6, uh, how about we go there? Job chapter 6, and we can quickly read through it. Job chapter 6, and we're looking here at verse 2 and 4. 2 through 4. See, his... Um, displaying to us the, the experience of, of grief. All that my grief were actually weighted and laid in balances together with my calamity. That was weighted. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, my words have been harsh, rash, rash. Uh -huh. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, and their poisonous sp my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So in his crying, Job recognizes that God has allowed this deep impairing, the spiritual pain into his life. After at least a month of deep sorrow in chapter 7, well, we have a, talks about that several weeks, several months, um, Job also attests that he has, had lost hope, not only in God, but in his temporal life. Uh, Verse 6 and 7, he says, My days are swifter than the weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. So there's a lot of verses that I'm just skipping here, but you know that Job lost his sleep, so he had insomnia. And I, I say here, if, modern, uh, if Job was a modern story, I'm certain that he would be giving a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. All right? I put a little um, picture there. And how you see Job in therapy. And some of his thinking was, was not right. God is out to get me. Um, what, what is wrong with that? Well, God did allow this to happen to Job, but he was not out to get him. All right? But it was God who allowed Job to realize that he's too depressed, his depressive state in this life. Job's experience was not a disease or an abnormality speaking of his depressive state. It was not brought about any sin or idolatry. Rather, his experience was God's goodness at work in his life. God knew that Job would rightly respond in sorrow to his losses, and thus he allowed Job's suffering to occur. In fact, 
the history of the story of Job is also a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, remember I, I mentioned to you um, to, to do an assignment to read Isaiah 53 and, and think about our Savior was a man of sorrows. I mean, you read Isaiah 53, and how can you think otherwise if our, if our very God went through this deep sorrow we, we're, we're not going to be exempt of it. Now, he suffered with a purpose, and I think that's the beauty of Isaiah 53, so that our sorrow is transformed. All right, so let's open your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Chapter, uh, look at verse 3 there. What does it say? He was despised and a forsaken man, a man of what? Sorrows and acquainted with grief. It, it was no novelty for him. He was well acquainted. He knew what was grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was rejected by his own people. He was um, forsaken by his own closest friends. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the, chastis the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Even when we were all like sheep going astray, each of us turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the, the stroke was due. So we see all of this, that Christ came to redeem even the way that we suffer. He took upon himself all our sins and to give us a, a different perspective on sorrow. Without God's merciful restraint of evil and his offer of grace through his word, surely sorrow, despair, and suffering would be unimaginable in our lives. Without Christ and his gracious revelations, all people, too, like Job, are full of sorrow and are hopeless in this world. If it were not for God's mercy and intervention of withholding Satan's work, crushing sorrow would be more fully experienced by every person in this life. Literally everyone, without exception, would Entering hell, that is the greatest of all depressions, is eternal condemnation. Now, how do we change our minds regarding this, uh, realizing God allows suffering? I think Lamentations chapter 3 is a, is a really good um, help for us. Let's open scriptures on Lamentations chapter 3. You see Jeremiah um, struggling with what is going on here, um, the people in captivity, 
and he's lamenting the situation that's happening with the people. So verse 14 talks about his circumstance. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has seated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace, and I have forgotten what happiness is. And then um, verse 18, he says, So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. He's lamenting this awful circumstance, and he's just without hope. The lamenter had to come a place of realizing that he could not bear his sorrow as he was not an agent of hope. But in verse 21 and 25, we see all of this changing. What does, what does he do here? This I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope, from hopeless to having hope. And what is that? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Genuine hope. And, and mentally accepting God's goodness are never separate issues. And now verses 26 to 33, you see here, he instructs, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he would bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when he's laid on him. Let, put him. let him put his mouth in dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief. Now I want you to see this. He's the one that causes grief. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict, afflict or grieve the children of men. Literally, he's saying here that it is not the Lord's heart to be pleased when he's causing the sons of men to grieve. God does not take pleasure in, in people grieving and having sorrow. But God, the, though God does not take no pleasure in grieving us, it is necessary for people to understand that their true condition in order to abandon hope in self and turn to hope in him, in him alone. It is God's goodness that causes sorrow. Responding to sorrow by mentally turning to God's goodness and discovering genuine hope in him, it is of utmost importance. All right. Now, God not only allows sorrow, sorrow and suffering, point two here, God withholds suffering. It is not always that the Lord will allow us to uh, experience suffering. In Philippians 2.27, for example, the Apostle Paul shares how God he spared Epaphroditus from death and purposed in his mercy to withhold sorrow from Paul. Um, Philippians 2.27, it says, Indeed, he was ill, talking about Epaphroditus, near to death, but God had mercy on him, 
and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So many times the Lord will spare us from having sorrows. We, we, we tend, we're so unthankful. We don't realize how much the Lord is sparing us, how much he's caring for us. Um, just as he spared Paul from having more sorrow, he is doing it even now. Psalm 31.9 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. It is inevitable, but not, not all the time the Lord will allow suffering to come into our lives. These passages teach that not only the, do godly people and also the Son of God struggle with deep impairing sorrow, but God, that God knows in his sovereignty and according to his loving kindness just how much sorrow each person needs to experience. So he knows exactly how much we need and how much we can take. All right, point three, God uses suffering. God uses suffering. Having the right theology of sorrow enables people to accept human condition as sorrowful and trusting God's goodness as the only hope. Yes, it is a result of the fall, but God massively use, uses sorrow um, for the good of his people. Until people come to a place of, of deep sorrow and brokenness over the reality of their human nature and humbly accept their hopeless and broken condition, abandoning, abandoning all their hopes, they will not be ready to respond to sorrow in a beneficial way by placing their hope in Christ alone. Now, I'm not speaking here of some sort of, uh, okay, now I'm just going to accept everything, like the Buddhist, right? They just... Um, you just accept the world as it is, and it's a fatalistic sense that uh, it's just inevitable. We can't um, cope with this. We just just have to accept it, and, and, and it hurt less. No, our our acceptance is not just a. Um, th there is a resilience that I I trust that this sorrow is intended by God. It is not something that I'm going to numb myself with the thought that is, well, what I can do about it, well, I can do something, and it's to put my trust in the Lord. God will use the sorrow to transform us. Um, remember in Matthew 5, I want to talk about the Beatitudes. Right? It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to draw your attention that the verse does not convey the idea that people who sorrow will be happy in this life and that sorrow will vanish. Rather, it does state that those who are deeply sorrowful about their true nature will be called near and invited and blessed when God's redemptive plan is complete. That blessed hope, it is the future, our future hope, the, the hope of the gospel. That in Christ and in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be joys forevermore. Now, as we're going to see later, there is reasons for being joyful even in this life. All right, and the last point here I have, we should, be, we should humble ourselves in suffering. And this I think I have brought for you before, First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time he may exalt you. I think going through suffering is a place for us to search our hearts and see, am I submissive to the Lord during suffering? I would take Jesus' example. In the moment of his greatest suffering, was 
He submitted his will to the Father. Am I doing this? Am I under, uh, under the I know that I'm under the mighty hand of God. This is happening. I don't know if he just allowed this. Is some spiritual evil forces behind it or other people are behind it. Yet, it is caused and brought into my life by a sovereign God. God's hand has humbled them and has placed them low in some way with respect to their circumstances in the world. Um, this is a Puritan Thomas Boston, and he says here, and I believe that this refers not only to those who are under some particular prominent afflictions, which is the lot of some, but also to those who by the providence of God are in any way lowered, which is the lot of all. Humble yourselves under the humbling circumstances that the Lord has placed you in. Whether you are under particular afflictions which have cast you down from your former heights or whether you are only subordinate in one or more relations or whether which is most common, both of these are um, the case. You must see that the mighty hand of God is your lot. It is what God has reserved for you. We are placed there by his hand which covers us and holds us there. And so, regard this with awe and crouch under his hand by the temper and disposition of your spirit. Suit your spirit to your lot. God has brought you low. Bring yourself low to those circumstances. Ricky. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah. Um, I, and I think with those uh, circumstances, it, it is a hard thing to really grasp the fact that, well, God's mighty hand is over me. Um, he says here, like, we, sometimes we, we keep trying to kick against it, <laughs> right? Like we can fight with God. It, instead, bringing ourselves to the position that he has brought us. It, it is the best place to be. God, you brought me to these humble circumstances. I'm going to humble myself. And you will be the one bringing me back. This is the outcome here. Therefore, we must consider the outcome of those who can not quietly keep the place assigned to them by God in their afflictions or relations. When they continually pressed upward against the mighty hand that is over them, the mighty hand resists them, throwing them down and often farther down than before. However, God gives grace and favor to those that do, do compose themselves under it, quietly discharging their duty in their situation. So with this in view, Set yourselves in humility. I think that goes back to what Lamentations 3 was saying, right? Jeremiah, you know, I'm going to keep silent and, and seek the Lord that he would give me grace. That's what I need. I need grace. Um, would those circumstances be removed with your heart not humbled? You would still be kicking against God. So, I think it, it is a matter of, of perspective, especially for those going through difficult circumstances. We want to have compassion, but we want to walk them through, God is with you. He is over this. He did allow this. Doesn't, that doesn't make him a, a bad God, an evil God. A God who cares that he's with you and he's walking with you. That is the major encouragement that we want to give to people. Sonia? Yeah? Yeah, uh, Sonia is speaking of, of God's mighty hand also in the hands of protection, right? Um, I, I can't remember of, of Jesus' word that the Lord holds us in his hand, right? And from there, nobody can, can remove us from that. So there is a sense that he, he's, yes, he's humbling us, but he's also caring for us, protecting us. 
He, he knows exactly how much we can endure. That hand is also there protecting us from more sorrow. All right? That's a very good observation, Sonia. Appreciate it. Lindsay? Mm-hmm. So uh, Lindsay's is talking about bitterness here, how um, when we respond, see if I'm tracking with you, um, that, that kicking against God, kicking against the mighty hand of God is it's very prideful. You know, why me? I don't deserve this. Well, what we deserve is hell. That's what we deserve. So whatever suffering the Lord does bring into our life, it does not even get close to what we deserve. I mean, that it, it's, not, it's humbling just to think in this, in this sense. Um, we can be thankful that, that God has spared our lives, and, and he's using this. I don't know why. It, it seems awful. It's, it's difficult, but he's with me, and that, that should give us hope. If not in this life, in the life to come, he will elevate us. I mean, you think, Think about the destiny of unbelievers for eternity, suffering. Ten, ten years passed, 50 years passed, 100 years passed, 1,000 years passed, and suffering upon suffering upon suffering and never-ending suffering, and we were spared of that and given grace and joy that is eternal. I think that puts things into perspective. All right. Um. I, and then here, so those things all work, even though, I, you know, um, the causes are different. I think that this first point also applies to this one for those that are having unbiblical thinking. Uh, mind you, um, the previous class I talked about those that are having unbiblical standards, and that's what is making them depressed. Their standards are not biblical, and they're frustrated, um, all of that. Then how do we fight those? Primarily with thankfulness and joy. Um, so still changing things into perspective. Joy and thanksgiving compared here. When we come before God, thankfulness begins by knowing that we are spiritually destitute. We are sinners who can't help but sin, but we deserve God's eternal rejection. God then pursues us, opens our eyes through his grace and mercy, and satisfies us with our deepest needs and spiritual thirst. Our law improves immensely. And when we turn, if, uh, we are in turn forever thankful. Most gifts are one-time events, but God's mercies are new every morning. Remember that, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentation 3.23? Therefore, we always give thanks, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his love endures forever. I put a, a Calvin uh, comic strip there. And he said, here, I am happy and content, but not euphoric. So now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. I need to stop thinking while I'm, I'm ahead. <laughs> um, we, we can so easily change from, from a mood of being happy and content when we forget the Lord's um, kindness and love toward us. It's just easy. You know, that's not enough. Not good enough, right? Um, thankfulness is the key also to, to fight this uh, moody and, and uh, sadness. Even so, joy is better. Thanksgiving is gratitude for a benefit that we have received. 
Joy includes gratitude, but it is true delight is in the beauty of God and the deep goodness in all the things that come from him. Joy draws attention outward with a non-possessive appreciation for something that is good. Now think about the, the blind man that Jesus healed in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is coming, and he, and he calls out for mercy. When Jesus stops, he asks, what do you want? He asks for sight, and when he gives the sight to him, he doesn't simply thank him, he follows him. This, too, is the beginning of joy. The attention is captured by the giver more than the benefit that he received. The fact that he sees now, it's, it's small compared to the joy that he has the Lord now he, who gave that gift. Joy in suffering. Joy is not the opposite of suffering. And I think sometimes we get this very wrong. We, we, we think that joy is, um, is just being happy, smiley all the time, but, but that's not the case. If it were a person practice, who practiced joy, could crowd out pain because we can just uh, exist together. So I'm having pain, and I, I'm going to just be happy very much, and then it's going to go away. That's not the case. Instead, joy can actually be a companion to suffering. You can see that in Christian funerals. I think for me, this is the greatest illustration of joy and suffering existing at the same time. These are grievous events for the church because of the loss of someone beloved. But they are also are the most joy-filled as worshipers contemplate the glories of heaven and remember that the death is not the last word. We will see this person, this person that had a, a body that was decaying. They are with the Lord. And one day they're going to be given a, a new, brand new body that is transformed. I'm going to run with them, I'm going to play with them, rejoice with them. How can we hold those two things together? Because the joy does not necessarily depend on the circumstances and the suffering that we're going through. To simultaneously say that some things are bad and others are good seems like a precarious balance. But that is the nature of this time of history. We continue to suffer, it, but suffering cannot rob us of the eternal joy that has already begun. Now, even Job spoke of his joy in unrelenting pain. Take a look at Job 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. talks about this joy in unrelenting pain. What was his joy about? Job 6.10. If you found it, you can read it. Thank you, Aaron. His joy was, I did not deny the Holy One. His words, he took joy in the fact that he had not denied God or questioned his faithfulness throughout his ordeal. He did not take pride in this. It wasn't that he was being boastful about um, not denying God. He found joy that because he knew that God saw his faithfulness as a good thing, and Job himself saw it was good well as well. Connect this together with the fact that God's promises that he will never let us to be tempted in a way that makes us makes sin inevitable. Right? First Corinthians ten thirteen. He will not cause you to be tempted beyond your ability to bear. Now, if God does not do that. This means that God will give you the grace to avoid sin during depression. 
especially the sin of charging God with wrongdoing. That's exactly what Job did. He never blamed God for, for being the cause. He was able to rejoice that God kept him from denying his word. You too can have joy in the midst of unrelenting pain. This is a precedent to the considerate a pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. I think th this is one of the hardest verses to, to first think about. Why do I have to rejoice in those things and different kind of trials? Well, the joy in this case is not a denial of the pain. You know, it's just not putting a smile on your face, thinking, oh, this, everything is all right. It is the joy that something wonderful is taking place. God is working in this sorrow to do something good. The person in trials has the opportunity to observe faith being refined, perseverance being developed, and maturity attained. These are a joy to behold, whether they are being nurtured in us or in others. I mean, I, I, I can attest the moments of greatest growth for me was the moments of greatest suffering. And I can look back and, and really rejoice. And even in the midst of it, I could rejoice. Wow, I was never so dependent on the Lord as I am being right now. It, it, and it was not about me. It was all about the Lord. He has done this. And I can rejoice in it. All right. Point two, fight boredom with delight in God's creation. I think boredom is part of depression. You know, it, it, it's not, they're not the same thing, but they do overlap. Um, boredom has much in common with depression. It sometimes is the key to it. It could be described as depression without pain. Um, this is scholar, this writer, uh, Patricia Sparks, um, defines it as the declaration that nothing possesses sufficient interest to be worth worthy attention. It says, uh, I dare you to try to excite me, and I bet you can't. Everything is flat and is in shades of, of blue and gray. You become bored in, in one of two ways. Here's um, Ed Welch. He describes this. First, you may have your eyes wide open to the ugliness, ugliness of life while you're blind to the shafts of glory that can be found almost anywhere, especially now that God's spirit has been given. I mean, you look at this world from a spiritual perspective, and, and you see it is broken. I mean, you, you just get tired of it. You're just indifferent. In a sense, uh, when you see no glory, there's much in this world that is uh, worth of your attention. We, but then we, what can we see from this world yet that God has created? Second, Boredom is a form of pride. The bored person is too cool to be moved by ordinary or the popular. Cultivated and sort of sophisticated observers have known to dismiss that boring people they encounter, meet, meetings they attend, sentiments they hear, they read, it's just, it's just black. It's indifferent. I, I just don't care. I'm just, this is nothing for me. It is prideful. Joy is the antidote for boredom. It says, look, God's glory is all around, and I can glorify him. Looking for joy. I put it here a little meme that, I don't know, this is a really old meme. Probably saw the two guys in the bus. One is looking on one side, and he sees rocks, and he just 
you know, depressed and sad, and the other one is looking to, to the mountains and just wide open, taking pictures, rejoicing with it. Um, we must be willing to welcome joy rather than to feel like you're betraying your depression by looking for it. It's funny. People with depression, they, 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 they don't want to have joy because they think they're betraying their depression. And it is true. Looking for joy is a betrayal of depression. As with hope, there is humility in joy. We have to acknowledge that we are wrong. We were betting that there was no beauty in God or anywhere else, but there is. So we start with confession and repentance. Confess that you have dis disagreed with God when he was said that, that is good. Confess that you have not even considered how to glorify God by pursuing joy, even though you know that it's obvious way to surprise this bored and pessimistic generation. Looking for joy in creation. I think it's one of the most common places that we can find joy. The scripture doesn't um, necessarily emphasize this, that we should be looking, but you, you look in Genesis 1, God created. What did he say? It was good, and it was good, and it was good. And he created mankind, and it was very good. Yes, the fall has marred God's creation, but there is a lot in there that we can rejoice not that we're going to be idolaters now, worshiping creation and, and, sh and, and um, shifting our hearts. I think there is a risk there. But we rejoice in the creator that made these things. Um, I, I remember counselors that sometimes they, you know, overemphasize this. Oh, no, you, you can't uh, be too close to the relationships because, you, you know, this is idolatry. And I think, yes, there is a risk for idolatry in relationships, in in enjoying creation and going for a hike, people can become really worshipers of nature, literally. But there is a sense in which that we can look at creation and see what a wonderful God we have. I can give thanks to him for these amazing things that he has made, people that he has placed in my life. All right. Here's, um, let's go read um, Psalm 90. What is the passage that I placed? It is in your notes. 96, um, verses 10 to 13. Psalm 96, verses 10 to 13. Someone found it. They can read it. Not allowed. Andrew, thank you. All right. So we see creation praising God for, for his justice and his righteousness. Now, we, we do know from Romans that it says that creation is groaning, right? That, that it is, has been marred by the fall, but yet there is a hope for restoration. I mean, if you, if you look at these beautiful monuments, um, love going to the mountains and seeing, you know, how, how big they are and looking at the pine trees all over. I mean, I just woke up um, yesterday and I looked, the wind has blown the snow and it was just like that ocean of flat, white stuff. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And you, you remind of it, reminded of scriptures that says that God has cleaned us as white as snow. I mean, not, no sin stains us anymore. You take opportunities to look at creation and see the beauty of, of God's truth revealed in that. The psalmist in Psalm 51, 8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. 
Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. It is not a selfish prayer that David was praying here. It is a purposeful one. God, I want to have joy. The psalmist wants to be as he intended to be, the person that every follower of Christ will be one day a joyful worshiper. Noticing joy in true, noble, right, pure, lovely. That's what we want to dwell on, right? Our thought to dwell on. Knowing that joy comes from God, we are free to take joy in the things that he has blessed. He is the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Everything good can produce quite a list. And I put it here, uh, a few of them um, that Ed Welsh listed. Eating, drinking, and working. We can rejoice with that, right? Uh, Ecclesiastes talks about the man finding joy in the fruit of their labor. There is joy in God's law. There is joy in bearing his name, Jeremiah 15, 16. There is joy in the loving, the love and unity that points others to the divine lover. I mean, when you share God's truth to others, there is joy in that. There's joy in the salvation of an unbeliever. There is faith in the faith and the obedience of others. Paul, many times in his letters, I am so thankful, I am so joyful that you are walking with God, that you're still faithful. A cheerful look, Proverbs 15.30, God's justice. Proverbs 11.10, wisdom in others. I mean, you look at people. I, sometimes I, I, I look at my wife and she says stuff. I'm like, wow, I'm so thankful for you. You're so wise. <laughs> God has gifted you with such wisdom. Praise him. Comfort given to those you love. 2 Corinthians 7, uh, uh, 7. Paul is rejoicing that God comforted them in their sorrow. People knowing Christ, receiving salvation. Um, Finding joy in others. The list can be endless. The laughter of children, the honoring of the righteous, the perseverance of the depressed, persecuted, or infirm, the pouring of God's spirit evident throughout the world. So there are many objects of, of joy. If God says that creation is good, we can enjoy it. How much more can we enjoy people, the part of God's creation that he proclaims very good? If God takes delight in you and others, then you can as well. Um, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. Zephaniah 3.17 says, He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. God rejoices in us. I think we can also rejoice in others, in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and find encouragement in that. All right, any comments so far on this joy and fighting boredom with creation? Any concerns, any thoughts here? And, and I, I like that Philippians 4, right? The whole letter of Philippians was written in the context of of deep difficulties. I mean, these people were being persecuted. They were, they were going through, through suffering. Paul wrote this letter in jail. Um, and so it, it's not a circumstantial thing. I mean, yeah, we are suffering. It is hard. But I can still find Joe. Is, is the Christian funeral, remember, 
you can have both joy and suffering present at the same time. Grieving and being joyful at the same time. And uh, really fighting the pride in our hearts that refuses to find joy in the things that God has made, that he has given. Uh, making a list of, of those things. I, I tend to, when I'm counseling people with depression, I, I ask them, um, I want you to every day um, think about 10 things to, to thank God for. Well, I, I, I'm alive. I'm saved. I mean, think about that. Many work in the word, go to the word of uh, the road of perdition. And here my Christ decided to save me. I'm so unworthy. Praise him. Reason one. Oh, I have people in my life that are caring for me right now. Praise him. So start writing that thankful, thankfulness list, and the boredom is going to start going away. That refusal to, to not see good in anything it starts going away as you start seeing what, how much God has given you. All right, I'm going to skip the, the point C here. It's um, for those refusing to deal with sin and guilt in God's way. I think we have talked enough on how to deal with sin, you know, confession and repentance. I think um, if you are ex- someone is being depressed because they are guilty about something that they did wrong, and rightly so, the weight of sin is on them. And the moment that you confess, and think about David, that he was depressed until he confessed his sin of adultery. And he started experiencing God's joy um, in, in that moment where he realized that God forgave him and took care of his iniquity. So I'm not going to spend much time on that, but I want to take this few uh, last minutes that I have to give you some practical guidance. Okay? What are some things that we need to be aware of? Of, of when helping um, depressed people, the, it, it is different. It's not that easy, and you want you don't want to be uh, too harsh with them. You want to be patient and caring. So three um, elements here that I got from uh, Welch's book on depression. Number one, depressed people need the encouragement of God's word. Um, Hebrews 3, uh, 12 through 13. Maybe someone can read that one for us. Um, what depressed people need and we all need are daily reminders of the spiritual reality. As the truth of Christ is impressed in our hearts, we must offer that to others and they to us. The target is always Christ and him crucified. The words are not magic, but they are food for the soul. Don't get derailed. What you need is not something new. You simply need to persevere in applying the old truths to present situations. You don't need to have to apologize to reading scripture to someone um, that is depressed, praying with them, looking for the Spirit's work in everyday events. In the same way that perseverance is key for the depressed person, perseverance in ordinary ministry is key for you as well. The depressed person is loyal to his or her pessimistic interpretations. You must be loyal to your Christ-centered convictions. If possible, offer Christ-centered interpretations in a way that is personal, meaningful, at least to you, and succinct. Since depression can affect the attention and concentration, uh, many times you will see them going on with a bitterness of heart and, and uh, thinking, why me? Why me? I am so... Why God chose me to, to give me those things. Like, no, uh, 
you know, like, we are deserving. <laughs> there is nothing that we are undeserving. You know who was undeserving? Christ. And he was punished in our place, on our behalf. That was the most um, unrighteous, unfair thing that ever happened in our eternity. And he bore upon himself our sorrow. He wasn't deserving of it, but he bore um, upon himself. So you have to help them. So Hebrews um, 12, someone found it. What does it say? Mm -hmm. So sin is deceitful. But it is easy. Our hearts are easily swayed. And if we know that of ourselves, we know that of our brothers and sisters that are struggling. They need as much help to be pointed to the deceitfulness of sin as we do. Let her be here. Say, share help um, them to carry their burden, but don't remove it from them. Um, Galatians 6, 2. What does it say there? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Someone found it. You can read it. What should we do with the heavy burdens that people have? Galatians 6, 2. All right? We, we bear with them. We care with them. We share that load. Uh, sometimes you would do a lot of heavy lifting with if a depressed person. Sometimes you've got to come to their house and, and help them with the house chores. Uh, but you don't do everything. You, you help them. You do with them. You encourage them. Sorry, my mic is going here. Uh, but if you are walking together, you will look for ways to share the load. One mistake that families and friends can make in the early stages of depression is to make all the effort themselves. It is a noble sacrifice, but you can't walk that way for very long. You will get tired. You can read to, pray for, exhort, and express love in many ways to depressed people, but you can't drag them to your goals. Your destination must be a shared goal. The end goal is Christ. The new goal is sometimes Infinitely, infinitely, ah, infinite me is small. Okay, I got it. No, I didn't. <laughs> to bring a structure to an existence that can feel aimless. So a structure really helps depressed people to have certain boundaries, guidelines, accountabilities, and reminders, organized plans. So the principle is this. The more painful and disabling the depression, the more important it is for counselors and friends to provide this structure. Trucker could include the following. Go to bed at, at a certain time. Get up at the same times each day. Eat at appointed times. So if you're part of the family, you're going to provide that structure. You know, at this time, we're going to have dinner. We're going to have lunch. Um, exercise at appointed times. We're going to go for a walk. We're coming with me. It might be just around the block. Simple as that. You... Obviously, you've got to be testing the waters. You don't want to overwhelm the person with much. Have a schedule for the day. Write down one thing you agree to work on every day. Okay? Um, today, we agreed that you would try to sweep the floor or, you know, a, a simple task, and you keep adding to that. Follow through on agreements that you made with other people. Let your yes be yes. This structure is not simply imposed of an unwilling victim. It is a partnership among brothers and sisters in Christ. Also include times of considering why. Why are we doing this? You've got to remind them. 
This is like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Why, why I should do this? Well, because God has want, wants us to be faithful and to be good stewards of our house. But we're going to clean it. <laughs> oh, God wants us to be good stewards of school. So we've got to do your homework. Maybe let's do just one page a day. Let's try to do this in our pace, but and I can help you with. But this is this is God's God's will for our life, and we He didn't ask us to do anything that He didn't prepare us or equipped us to do. All right. So remember and review God's purposes. Remind one another of that the present training, though perhaps wearisome and hard, has eternal benefit. First Timothy four eight. The training of godliness have ever, every benefit, not only for this life, but for the life to come. There are two ways to err on helping depressed people uh, bring a structure into their lives. One is to impose a pace that is beyond their ability, making them feel even more hopeless. And, um, but start slowly, help people to set very basic goals initially and then work together to gradually inc increase the number of tasks and goals in, the, in a day. The other way to err is to omit frequent times of accountability. You just, uh, once a month you go and visit, right? or once a week. Well, sometimes depressed people need daily reminders, daily accountability. If, you're, if you don't live with them, maybe call them and maybe visit once a week, but call them every day, see how things are going. Um, how Were you able to, to do the dishes today? Were you able to... But do I need to come alongside you today to help it? Since this may continue for months, those who minister might develop a practical and wise space for themselves, being willing to serve while also being mindful of their responsibilities. So you share the burden. You do not do it all. And then lastly, interrupt as needed. Discourage unbiblical thinking and acting. If your good friend suddenly insisted that you were an alien intended to murder them, you would try to disabuse him of an accurate interpretation, right? But some people just start paranoid. Like, are you just here to oppress me? No, I'm here to help you. You would try to understand why he developed such a perspective. Ask questions. Why do you think I am here to, to oppress you? But you not sit, sit idly, idly uh, by why you were being accused. Instead, you would seek to persuade the person of the truth. You know, let's, let's think this through. You might even rebuke the friend for his persistence in clinging to an interpretation despite all evidence and counsel the con to the contrary. Likewise, when depressed people interject their skewed and self-defeating interpretations of life, you can't just sit idly by. You need to speak truth to them. You need to challenge and interrupt their inaccurate interpretation because it is wrong and leads to deeper despair. Naomi was saying, well, God is against me. His mighty hand is against me. Someone needed to come and say, well, Naomi, no, look at you. You're blessed. Look at the woman that came with you. You're not with empty hands. The Lord has blessed you. Um, let me skip here. Wisdom and love, of course, must dominate your relationships with those who are depressed. They should dominate any relationship, really. But if you find that you're increasingly reluctant to say important things, reconsider your path. Talk to someone who has been in a similar path. If you're slow to say the things that you think are important, you're not really engaging in that relationship. 
as a rule, the closer relationship, the more open you should be with the other person. I had a, a dear friend that went through a depression. I probably wouldn't talk to anyone like that, but with him I could say, well, you need a shave. You know, <laughs> it, it's just a good reminder. I'm like, you're looking like a homeless person. I, I, I know that you're not like that. You're, but I don't talk to any, you know, if I'm not close to that person, I gotta be careful. I'm gonna be more caring. And, and he appreciated that, you know. We just had a good laugh afterwards and just thinking how, you know, the whole thing went. Um, don't hesitate to interrupt flow of despair, self-pity, and complaints that only reinforce the person's unbiblical interpretations of God and himself. All right, sometimes it feels like when you're walking, um, you're carrying a torch around a bomb with a short fuse, right? You, you just, it's like stepping on eggshells. Like, if I say this, they're going to be worse. If I say this, it's going to be worse. No, sometimes you've got to say truth. I mean, you say with love, you speak the truth in love, but you, see, you still say it. They're not a, a, a bomb <laughs> ready to explode. There are someone created in the image of God in need of God's help. All right. I realize that I'm way past my time here. But um, I, live, I left there some books uh, as resources um, that you can use to encourage and help someone. All right. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your words that give us hope and help in time of need. Help us, Lord, as a church to be caring and loving toward those in need. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.